From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, officials in eastern Libya say a powerful storm has killed thousands of people and still twice as many are missing. The Chinese president's met with his Venezuelan counterpart in Beijing, and young people in China are exploring a new trend in socializing. In business, China's rising trade with Venezuela. In sports, athletes preparing for the Hangzhou Asian Games. And in culture and entertainment, an event in New York City celebrating Chinese cuisine. Now the day's top stories. Libyan authorities say more than 5,000 people are presumed dead and another 10,000 missing in the wake of a powerful storm. Hurricane Daniel hit the region on Sunday, causing severe flooding and the collapse of two dams. The eastern city of Derna is among the worst affected, with large swaths of land uh, being submerged. The Red Crescent says it expects the death figure to continue to grow in the coming days. Uh, meantime, the United Nations is closely monitoring the situation on the ground and has mobilized emergency teams to assist in relief efforts. Catherine Drew has details. As Storm Daniel brought a deluge of water from above, two dams on the Wadi Derna River burst, sending millions of tons of water downstream towards the port city of Derna. Torrents rushed towards the sea with homes, cars and bridges swept away. One official from eastern Libya estimates a quarter of the city has been destroyed. Hundreds of bodies are reported to be piling up waiting to be identified. With many roads and communication infrastructure destroyed, there are fears the full extent of the damage is not yet clear. Inland areas such as Al-Baida were also badly affected, with people trapped in their homes. The International Federation of the Red Cross estimates around 10,000 people are missing. Government in Tripoli has sent a plane with 14 tons of aid to the eastern region, while supplies have also begun arriving from Turkey and other nations. 
Some believe the disaster has been exacerbated by a lack of investment in roads and services, while building standards and other safety regulations regarding dams and other infrastructure has taken a back seat in a country riven by political chaos for over a decade. That was Catherine Drew reporting. A combination of heavy rainfall, vulnerable geography, and weak infrastructure has made the floods in eastern Libya the worst north, uh, in North Africa in almost a century. In the port of Beda, next to the hardest city of Derna, over 400 millimeters of rainfall fell in 24 hours. That's over 30 times more than the city receives in a typical September. Other locations also received 150 to 240 millimeters of rain. Derna is a low-lying city at the end of a valley. Uh, the area has several rivers flowing from the highlands. It's usually protected by dams. After a long hot summer, the extremely dry soil was unable to absorb large amounts of water. And as Storm Daniel dumped excessive rainfall over the region, torrents of water from the mountains uh, overwhelmed two dams, causing their collapse. Well, meantime, a Libyan analyst says a series of factors may have hampered rescue efforts. Claudia Gazzini with the International Crisis Group acknowledges that logistical barriers in particular have been preventing aid from reaching flood-hit areas. There are no aid delivery efforts at the moment, especially in Derna, which is the city that is most hard hit. This means that people are digging with their hands, quite literally. The reason why aid's not arriving is mainly logistic, part of the roads accessing Derna have been destroyed, so the city is isolated, um, and efforts to reach the city via sea haven't materialized yet. And as far as we know, um, uh, there are other towns on the road between Benghazi and Derna that also need assistance, even though they're not damaged as much as uh, Derna is. So really, it's, it's a series of problems. That was analyst Claudia Gazzini at the International Crisis Group. Days after a powerful earthquake struck Morocco, the full extent of the tragedy continues to unfold. The government says over 2,900 have died, with thousands more injured. Despite the ongoing search and rescue efforts, public frustrations growing over the slow pace of recovery efforts. Giles Gibson has more from Marrakesh. There's a relative sense of calm here in Marrakesh, although residents do have that nagging thought in the back of their minds that there could be some sort of an aftershock after such a huge earthquake has struck their country. Meanwhile, in some remote villages in the high Atlas Mountains, there is a little bit of relief arriving with search and rescue teams on the ground and also food and water and tents being handed to some of the survivors, although there are also communities high up in the mountains who have not yet had any help whatsoever. They are still waiting for search and rescue teams and relief efforts to reach their very isolated communities. There is also assistance arriving from all over the world. There are teams from the United Kingdom and Spain and Qatar arriving uh, to search through the rubble, although clearly every hour, every minute that ticks by, there is also a sense that they are losing a little bit of hope each time of finding a survivor trapped under the rubble. Meanwhile, the government here in Morocco is facing accusations from some quarters that it's not accepted enough offers of assistance that have come flooding in from all over the world, although supporters of the government are saying that they are simply being very careful in choosing which partners they are deciding to work with. There's also been an appeal from the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies uh, they're asking for more than 110 million US dollars 
to avoid what they describe as a second wave of disaster. So that is a, a picture that they see could be developing where these isolated communities, once those search and rescue teams have given up hope and once they've packed up their gear, that these communities who've been hit so hard by this earthquake could potentially be left without basic services, without electricity, without water and food as they head into the winter. And so now, as we move into the secondary phase of the response, there is that appeal for money and aid to be sent to Morocco to avoid that secondary wave of disaster. That was Giles Gibson reporting. Morocco's mobilized its military in the wake of the devastating earthquake. Ken Brown reached the Osni Military Field Hospital near the worst hit areas. An army hospital at the foot of the Atlas Mountains. People who have lost everything find shelter and medical assistance. They talk of the night when their world caved in, of loved ones lost and an uncertain future. Saida was one of the lucky ones. She and her family of 15 made it out alive. In Asni, there isn't a single inhabitable house. Our entire village needs to be built from scratch. We don't know how long we will live here. The authorities are focusing on the rescue of survivors and the search for the bodies. The facilities here have x-ray machines, a pharmacy, a traumatology tent and even an operating theater. The injured arrived in ones and twos in ambulances, receiving attention as word begins to spread that the hospital is up and running. This military hospital was set up in less than 48 hours to help the many survivors trapped in the Atlas Mountains. It has the capacity for around a thousand people and beyond the physical injuries, there is also a psychiatrist here to help with the trauma of a tragedy that will be difficult to forget. With many villages still unreachable, authorities are accessing remote areas by helicopter and bringing basic supplies like food and water. As tremors continue and cause further rock slides closing roads, many obstacles remain. With national and international help beginning to arrive in some of the disaster zones, the fading hopes of finding more victims alive rise a little. And that was Ken Brown taking a closer look at a field hospital near the epicenter of the earthquake uh, in Morocco. During a recent interview with CGTN, China's ambassador to Morocco said Beijing's willing to provide humanitarian assistance to help the uh, country recover. Li Chenglin's remarks came after the Chinese foreign ministry pledged to continue to provide necessary support and assistance to Morocco. After the earthquake, our embassy immediately activated the emergency mechanism, issued protection reminders and maintained close communication with the Overseas Chinese Association, the Chinese Enterprises Association and the medical team in Morocco. We contacted multiple domestic delegations who attended the 10th International Conference on UNESCO Global Geoparks and also contacted the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Morocco to check our casualties. As of now, the Red Cross Society of China has announced that it will provide emergency assistance of 200,000 US dollars of cash to the Moroccan Red Crescent Society. And the China International Development Corporation Agency has also announced that it's willing to provide emergency humanitarian assistance. 
Some other Chinese departments, institutions, and enterprises have also expressed their willingness to donate. We will do our best to provide assistance to Morocco's needs, and as a sincere friend and a reliable partner for Morocco, we will do our best to help Morocco overcome the current difficulties. That was Chinese Ambassador to Morocco Li Chenglin speaking. Coming up, the Venezuelan leaders meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. An unusual selection of seafood products has sparked widespread discussions in China. As your place of origin is Xinjiang, a region thousands of kilometers away from the coastline. Join Deep Dive this week to explore the thriving seafood industry deep in the desert. How is seafood produced without a marine environment? How can inland aquatic products still be competitive in China's coastal regions, where people are known as connoisseurs of premium seafood? Available on all major podcast platforms. Just search for Deep Dive. At 11 minutes past the hour, Chinese President Xi Jinping has held talks with his Venezuelan counterpart, Nicolas Maduro, in Beijing. President Xi said China and Venezuela are good friends who trust each other and good partners for common development. China has always approached its relationship with Venezuela from a strategic and long-term perspective. We will continue to support Venezuela in maintaining its national sovereignty, dignity, and social stability. We stand firmly by Venezuela in its fight against external interference. I'm pleased to announce the elevation of our relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership. Well, next year marks the 50th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between the two countries. President Xi said he's willing to work with President Maduro to draw up a blueprint for the development of China-Venezuela relations and to consolidate and deepen cooperation between the two countries. Maduro's on a seven-day state visit to China. Since Friday, the Venezuelan leaders toured a number of Chinese cities, including Shenzhen, Shanghai, and Jinan. Uh, Chen Mengfei has more. So the Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has had a tightly packed schedule during his week-long stay visit in China. He arrived in Beijing on a high-speed railway train, and we saw on his social media that he met with officials in Beijing in the International Center for Poverty Reduction of China. And, you know, since he arrived last Friday in Shenzhen, President Maduro has been in high spirit. We see on his social media that wherever he goes, you know, he greets people in Chinese saying, how are you? And he's been posting on his social media about various places he visits. You know, he was in Shenzhen. It's a sign of how he wants to learn from the economic miracle that happened in Shenzhen over the past few decades. And then he was in Shanghai, he was in Shandong, he was visited the Taishan Mountain, he was with his wife by his side. You know, they've been talking to various officials across the country and they signed a series of agreements between various cities and states in Venezuela and these places in China. And we believe the idea is that, you know, to learn from China's technology and development models and increase relationship between the two countries. Of course, we're still waiting to hear more outcomes of the visit, but based on interviews President Maduro gave Chinese state media before his trip, we know that he hopes to promote Venezuela to join the BRICS bloc, which is uh, this group of emerging economies and is welcoming new members. 
And according to the Chinese Foreign Ministry, before the visit, China says they hope that through the president's visit, the two countries can elevate the comprehensive strategic partnership to a new level, making significant contributions to global peace, stability, international fairness, and justice. So this is President Maduro's fifth visit to China as the president. That was Chen Mengfei in Beijing. In the meantime, Zambian President Haikonde Hichilema has completed the first leg of his week-long state visit in China. His delegation has been in Shenzhen and visited several leading companies in the country's trade and technology hub. The president also discussed practical collaboration across key sectors such as mining resource exports, telecommunications, and digital infrastructure. For the remainder of the visit, the African leader will be meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Chung, sign a raft of cooperation agreements, and visit Jiangxi and Fujian provinces. The visit is expected to address uh, Chinese investments in Zambia's key sectors and facilitate friendly exchanges ahead of next year's 60th anniversary of China-Zambia ties. Russian President Vladimir Putin's held talks with visiting North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Russia's Far East. The two leaders met at the Vostochny Cosmodrome, which is said to be Russia's most modern space rocket launch site. Well, hours ahead of the meeting, North Korea launched two ballistic missiles off its east coast. Alyosa Milenkovich has more in Vladivostok. What we know is that at the beginning, earlier in the morning, Vladimir Putin, together with the leaders, of Russian space program actually showed several details or several buildings and facilities of that Vostochny Cosmodrome. Just to mention that that's Russia's only civilian cosmodrome. Apparently, Russia would like to help uh, North Korea to develop its space program. North Korea tried to have several launches of its satellites uh, into orbit in the past several years, but none of them was successful. So North Korea is apparently interested in that. In the delegation of the North Korea, there was a military representative, Minister of Defense as well, just the same on the Russian side. The Russian Minister of Defense uh, was present. There is, uh, we would say, a wide speculation that the presence of those military, military officers and ministers of defense would uh, show that those two countries actually have discussed the military cooperation as well. Well, from the standpoint of uh, both North Korea and Russia, those two countries are currently uh, among the most sanctioned countries in the world. North Korea, of course, is maybe the most sanctioned country in the world. And uh, it is a big question, what actually the United States can do anymore to harm North Korea? And from the Russian point of view, that's, that's the same. So uh, they are not considering these threats from the U.S. in a very serious manner. And there are several analyses which I've just maybe uh, one hour ago seen here in Russia that this step uh, towards making closer ties or military closer ties between North Korea and Russia is just a Russian response to United States decision from a few days ago to deliver to Ukraine long-range missiles and that the United States will not object Ukraine using those missiles on targets which are on the Russian territory. So that might be one of the reasons for making these two countries, North Korea and Russia, uh, militarily closer than before. That was Alios Malenkovich with updates on the meeting between the Russian and North Korean leaders.
The Russian ambassador to the U.N.s criticized the United States' decision to send deadly cluster munitions to Ukraine. The U.N.'s high representative for disarmament affairs says that all parties should be responsible for protecting civilians under humanitarian law. William Densler reports from New York. This Security Council meeting was called by Russia and its representative at the United Nations accused the West of adopting scorched-earth policies around the world. Moscow's strongly condemned Washington's decision to send depleted uranium shells and cluster munitions to Ukraine. They clearly don't have any shred of decency left. They didn't have any. Indeed, when they raised uh, towns to the ground in Yugoslavia, Libya, Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan. So I suppose why should they have a shred of decency now when they're conducting this proxy war against Russia in Ukraine? China's representative warned that the continued flow of arms into Ukraine will hurt mediation efforts. We hope that the parties concerned will respond positively to the expectations and calls from the international community to maintain calm and restraint, meet each other halfway, seek consensus, and avoid aggravating tensions. The UN's High Representative for Disarmament Affairs warned that all parties had a duty to protect civilians under humanitarian law. Izumi Nakamitsu added that the conflict in Ukraine had brought unbearable suffering and urged the international community to make every effort to strive for peace. That was William Denslow reporting. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has called for opening an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, citing allegations of corruption. McCarthy said the House investigations found uh, what he called a culture of corruption around the Biden family, as Republicans probed the business dealings of the president's son, Hunter Biden. Republicans have previously accused the president of profiting from his son's foreign business ventures as he served as vice president from 2009 to 2017. Uh, The White House says Republicans have turned up no evidence of wrongdoing and has denounced the impeachment push as uh, politically motivated. A U.S. scholar has warned of the danger of such moves to the country's stability. Constitutional law professor Stephen Griffin at Tulane University says the impeachment is becoming a, a prevalent political tool, putting the U.S. on a slippery democratic slope. Republicans, if they don't come up with more than what they've got, they will face a real choice between pursuing things on the floor of the House when there will be substantial arguments and evidence against them, or they succeed because they work to convince their members of the party that there's sufficient evidence, but then it falls apart in the Senate. Now it looks like we're involved in a tit-for-tat situation where the parties feel that any um, effort against a president of their own has to be, in effect, paid back. And that's a really bad situation for any democracy to be in because it could obviously just spiral out of control. And that was Professor Stephen Griffin. China says so-called Taiwan independence forces have endangered peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Spokesperson Chen Binhua of the State Council Taiwan Affairs Office made the comment when noting that Taiwan was the largest arms buyer of the United States between 2020 and 22. The so-called Taiwan independence forces have pursued more and more weapons sales. The debts build up have made it uneasy for Taiwan compatriots. If the Democratic Progressive Party authorities carry on the evil path of selling Taiwan, harming Taiwan and destroying Taiwan, it will only push Taiwan into a dangerous situation of war. 
and bring serious harm to Taiwan compatriots. The DPP authorities should know that any act of seeking independence by force cannot shake our firm will to resolve the Taiwan question. Complete reunification will be achieved. We will safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity. A spokesperson also noted the arms sales have uh, harmed the vital interests of the people in Taiwan. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, a new socializing trend for young people in China. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 23 minutes past the hour now. Young people in China are looking for new ways to connect and share their hobbies. One of the newest trends is dad's socializing, which means getting together with random people with the same hobbies. Joe Fung spoke with several individuals who've experienced this new way of meeting people. 23-year-old Li Hanning works at a bank in Beijing. She's a big fan of street dance, but doesn't like to perform alone. Li says she often searches for posts looking for dance partners on social media platforms, such as Weibo and Xiaohongshu. If I come across someone nearby, I will leave a comment or a message inviting them to join me in the performance. We then will agree upon a suitable time for the dance. The reason I enjoy dazi is because doing such activities alone in an unfamiliar environment can feel intimidating, and it's only natural to seek companionship. Partners in Dazi socializing range from foodies and fitness buddies to travel and mahjong partners. Lisa says besides dance partners, she also likes to find partners to take photos with. One can prepare the outfit and makeup. The other can prepare the equipment. I believe this approach is mutually beneficial. Actually, many of my partners have become dear friends, and we now share and participate in even more activities together. So in the future, even if my friends are unavailable when I have free time, I will still choose dads as a means to enrich my life. Dads may share the same hobbies and have similar tastes, but the relationship needs less effort to maintain as people are not looking for intimate relationships. But making friends and even having lasting friendships could be an added bonus. 36-year-old Wang Mong from Heilongjiang province echoes this sentiment after having experienced Dazi multiple times. Wang works as an online presenter at an internet company in Beijing. She likes to look for travel partners for both domestic tours and overseas trips. My first trip with travel partners was to the Philippines, followed by another trip to Turkey. In the Philippines, our group had seven people. Throughout the entire trip, we fostered a strong team spirit, with everyone contributing their strengths. For example, we had a skilled photographer who helped capture our precious moments and someone fluent in English who assisted in communicating with the locals. After returning from the Philippines, we remained close friends. We even met up again in Guangzhou during my recent business trip. Wang says Dazi is a good choice because it can be difficult to coordinate travel plans with friends due to their different schedules. 
She also says traveling alone abroad can be risky, so she prefers to find fellow travel enthusiasts who share similar interests and destinations. The white collar worker added that there are certain things that one should pay attention to when finding a stranger as a partner. When traveling this way, adopting a team mentality is crucial, rather than expecting others to serve you. It's important to handle differences with an open mind, because first of all, the purpose is to have fun through the companionship. Safety should be a priority. Next time, I would ask to see their social media profiles or learn more about their current occupation. A recent industry report shows that over 60% of the young people surveyed expressed a strong desire to find Dazi, and nearly 19% already have experience with Dazi socializing. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhou Fang. Tuesday was a pivotal day in Israel as the country's entire 15-judge high court panel convened for the first time in the country's 75-year history. Their mission was to hear appeals against and for an amendment to a basic law that gives the government more power and weakens the courts. How the judges eventually rule, plus the response to that ruling, may determine the stability of Israel in the long run. Stephanie Fried explains. All 15 Supreme Court judges convened for Tuesday's hearing because it's one of the most consequential in Israel's history. The hearing boils down to a clash between the country's executive or government branch versus its judicial or legal branch. Government ministers and parliamentarians maintain that as officials elected by the people, they have jurisdiction over lawmaking and governmental appointments without court intervention. Opponents of the judicial overhaul say that interpretation endangers Israel's democratic nature, the preservation of civil and human rights, and protection against corruption. Some government ministers have hinted they may defy any court ruling that alters or strikes down the amendment they voted on in July. If that happens, protests that have gripped the country since January are likely to intensify. It could be months before the judges hand down a decision. Some legal experts predict the panel will opt for a compromise that calls for reworking the basic law amendment. But again, the government's response to any high court ruling will set the tone in Israel for the months and possibly years to come. Uh, Stephanie Freed reporting from Jerusalem. 28 past the hour in Beijing's at 16 degrees overnight. Tomorrow will be sunny and 28 degrees. Chongqing's down to 21, then sunny and 30. Last is dipping to 8, then sunny and 23. Hong Kong's 26 overnight. It'll see moderate rainfall tomorrow in 29. Elsewhere, Tokyo, 24 degrees this evening, a slight rain and 31 on Thursday. Islamabad's down to 26 degrees, then a light rain and 37. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, officials in eastern Libya say a powerful storm has killed thousands of people and still twice as many are missing. The Chinese presidents met with his visiting Venezuelan counterpart in Beijing. And young people in China are exploring a new trend in socializing. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. I love you. 我爱你. 
This might be the easiest way to say "I love you," since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you are a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点 ，or a sophisticated learner. 我来北京五年了，我是本地人。There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Bigum, with you on this Wednesday. Still to come in business, China's rising trade with Venezuela. In sports, athletes preparing for the Hangzhou Asian Games. In culture and entertainment, an event in New York City celebrating Chinese cuisine. To contact us, you can email audio newsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at cgtn radio. But first of all, checking the day's headlines. News. Here's Zhu Tianlu. Thank you, Shane. China and Venezuela have announced the elevation of their relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership. The announcement came during talks between Chinese President Xi Jinping and his Venezuelan counterpart Nicolas Maduro in Beijing. President Xi said China and Venezuela are good friends who trust each other and good partners for common development. China always from a strategic and long-term China has always approached its relationship with Venezuela from a strategic and long-term perspective. We will continue to support Venezuela in maintaining its national sovereignty, dignity, and social stability. We stand firmly by Venezuela in its fight against external interference. I'm pleased to announce the elevation of our relationship to an all-weather strategic partnership. The two leaders also attended a signing ceremony of several cooperation documents. Maduro is on a seven-day state visit to China. Since Friday, the Venezuelan leader has toured a number of Chinese cities, including Shenzhen, Shanghai, and Jinan. China says so-called Taiwan independence forces have endangered peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Spokesperson Chen Binghua of the State Council Taiwan Affairs Office made the comment when noting that Taiwan was the largest arms buyer of the United States between 2020 and 2022. 因为台独势力的折腾，武器越买越多。The so-called Taiwan Independence Forces have pursued more and more weapons sales. The debts build up have made it uneasy for Taiwan compatriots. If the Democratic Progressive Party authorities carry on the evil path of selling Taiwan, harming Taiwan, and destroying Taiwan, it will only push Taiwan into a dangerous situation of war and bring serious harm to Taiwan compatriots. The DPP authorities should know that any act of seeking independence by force cannot shake our firm will to resolve the Taiwan question. Complete reunification will be achieved. We will safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The spokesperson also noted that arms sales have harmed the vital interests of the people in Taiwan. The United Nations Security Council has expressed its condolences to the people of Morocco and Libya. Council President Albana Dotlari started a meeting with a moment of silence to honor the victims of the devastating earthquake and flooding in the two countries. At the outset of this meeting, I should like, on behalf of the members of the Security Council, to express our profound sadness over the devastating earthquake that hit Morocco. Last Friday, and the deadly flooding that has affected Libya over the past days. 
These events have led to the loss of thousands of lives. Our thoughts are with all those affected by these heartbreaking disasters. In Libya, thousands are dead and over 10,000 are still missing after heavy rains brought by a powerful storm caused two dams to fail near Derna. Meanwhile, international aid groups have mobilized in Morocco, where a 6.8-magnitude earthquake struck late Friday and killed nearly 3,000 people and injured more than 5,500. Russian President Vladimir Putin has held talks with the visiting North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Russia's Far East. The two leaders met at the Vostochny Cosmodrome, which is said to be Russia's most modern space rocket launch site. Hours ahead of the meeting, North Korea launched two ballistic missiles off its east coast. The Russian ambassador to the UN has criticized the United States' decision to send deadly cluster munitions to Ukraine. The UN's High Representative for Disarmament Affairs says that all parties should be responsible for protecting civilians under humanitarian law. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has called for opening an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, citing allegations of corruption. McCarthy said the House investigation has found what he called a culture of corruption around the Biden family as Republicans probe the business dealings of the president's son, Hunter Biden. Republicans have previously accused the president of profiting from his son's foreign business ventures while he served as vice president from 2009 to 2017. The White House says Republicans have turned up no evidence of wrongdoing and has denounced the impeachment push as politically motivated. The United States is advancing a prisoner swap deal with Iran as Washington tries to free Americans detained by Tehran. The Biden administration has issued a blanket waiver for international banks to transfer six billion U.S. dollars in frozen Iranian money from South Korea to Qatar without fear of U.S. sanctions. The move has helped clear the way for the release of the five Americans detained in Iran. Washington also agreed to release five Iranian citizens held in the U.S. Delegations for the upcoming Group of 77 and China Summit have arrived in Havana, Cuba. Starting from Friday, the event will gather heads of state and high-level government officials from around the world. At the invitation of the Cuban president, Chinese official Li Xi will attend the summit as a special representative of President Xi Jinping. Cuba took on the rotating presidency of the G77 plus China in January, chairing the 134-country bloc for the first time. Scientists have rushed to Hawaii's Kilauea volcano to collect lava samples after it roared back to life on Sunday. The Hawaii Emergency Agency says the eruption does not pose a threat to communities, though volcanic particles could cause breathing issues. The agency has raised the area's evasion code from orange to red and upgraded the volcano alert from watch to warning. Kilauea is one of the world's most active volcanoes. An eruption in 2019 destroyed hundreds of homes and businesses. Thank you very much for the update. That was Zhu Tianlu. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's rising trade with Venezuela. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. 
The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. 38 minutes past the hour. Turning to business and stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Wednesday. Timothy Pope has more. The uh, Chinese mainland markets continued sliding. Trading volumes remain pretty low. Uh, the Shanghai Composite Index was down about half of 1%, and the Shenzhen component fell by a full 1%, uh, a little more actually. The uh, low volumes are reflected at the moment in a survey uh, of Asia fund managers that came out from Bank of America, and that was looking into uh, sentiment regarding Chinese stocks. Uh, energy stocks were about the only sector making meaningful gains as oil prices neared a 10 month high. Petro China shares were up about 2%. There were gains as well for Sinopec and offshore oil engineering. Uh, other fossil fuel stocks uh, also did pretty well. Coil, uh, coal extractor, excuse me, China Shenhua uh, added by about 1.5%. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index dipped nearly one-tenth of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei lost more than two-tenths of a percent. Trade volume between China and Venezuela reached nearly $2 billion U.S. billion in the first half of the year, marking 16% growth. China mainly exports electrical equipment, machinery, and electronics to Venezuela, while imports include crude oil, refined oil, and iron ore. A meantime, bilateral investment also rose since the two countries signed agreements under the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. Huang Fei reports. China and Venezuela have maintained diplomatic ties for nearly half a century. Nine years since relations were officially upgraded to a comprehensive strategic partnership, Beijing and Caracas are set to strike new deals in key industries. Venezuela has the largest crude reserves in the world, but international sanctions have hurt export revenues. China offers crucial funding and investment while promising no interference in the country's sovereign affairs. For a long time, Venezuela's economy has been highly dependent on oil. With domestic politics normalizing, the oil sector needs urgent capital injection, which will help revive their entire national economy. For China, the Venezuelan energy sector offers huge investment opportunities, and Chinese firms already have a lot of experience in this area. China's growing ties with Venezuela comes at a challenging time for Latin America. Rising debt stress, inflation, and the global impacts of the ongoing crisis in Ukraine are hampering economic recovery. China has played a key role in developing energy and infrastructure projects in Venezuela. And more investment is on the way, with Beijing signing several new free trade agreements with Latin American countries this year. The World Economic Forum reports that trade between China and Latin America grew more than 20 times in the last two decades and is expected to exceed 700 billion U.S. dollars by 2035. Venezuela remains a risky investment for Chinese firms. Sometimes normal investments from China can be overinterpreted as a political move in Venezuela, and that can be a risk factor. Secondly, Venezuela's credit rating has been downgraded to the lowest by Moody's Investors Service. Chinese companies will have difficulty financing in the country. They need to look at diversifying investments and mitigate credit risks. Despite these challenges, China's economic footprint in Latin America is expected to grow. 
The World Bank has advised policymakers to attract more investment by maintaining economic stability, improving customs regulations, and trade promotion agencies. That was Huang Fei reporting. Industry data shows that China's automobile exports saw robust growth momentum in August. According to the China Association of Automobile Manufacturers, more than 400,000 vehicles shipped overseas last month, a surge of over 32 percent. The production of new energy vehicles was 843,000, increasing 22 percent, while sales of new energy vehicles reached 846,000, registering an increase of 27 percent. The last batch of uh, exhibits for the uh, upcoming 20th China ASEAN Expo has arrived in Nanning. Nearly 1,700 exhibitors from more than 40 countries are set to attend the annual event, which runs from Saturday to Tuesday. This year's expo will see 150,000 exhibits displayed at the Nanning International Convention and Exhibition Center. The first batch of exhibits was from Malaysia, totaling 576 pieces and weighing around 6.2 tons. Apple's introduced the new iPhone 15 series alongside a new Apple Watch Series 9, an Apple Watch Ultra 2, and an eco er, and eco-friendly accessories. The company says the iPhone 15 has a new camera system. The phone's available with a 6.1-inch and a 6.7-inch display. There are five color options, including pink, green, and yellow. Apple Watch Series 9 comes in 41 millimeters and 45 millimeters with a brighter display. And according to the company, the Apple Watch is the first carbon neutral device featuring highly recycled materials. Chinese and Brazilian companies are deepening cooperation in the oil industry. Zhang Yibing recently spoke with executives of a Chinese company and a Brazilian company in Rio de Janeiro on their cooperation. This is where the office of CNPC Brazil is located. So let's get inside to see how this big project between China and Brazil is evolving here. Our oil and gas fields are in southern Brazil. They are the production fields of Libra and Buzios and the exploration field of ARAM. We signed the production sharing contract on Libra in 2013 and then in 2019 on Buzios and ARAM. And now we have very good cooperation with the Brazilian side. Their main work platform is a vessel called the Floating Production Storage and of Floating. More simply, the FPSO. It's 350 meters long and about 55 meters wide, with a capacity to store 650,000 barrels of oil. All our deep water oil and gas exploration and development projects use FPSO. There are two FPSO in Libra now. The first one can produce 50,000 barrels per day, and the second produces 180,000 barrels per day. And there will be three new FPSOs, each capable of producing 180,000 barrels per day. CNPC Brazil's vice president went on to say the projects use advanced environment-friendly technologies, and gas production also meets the needs of the local market and creates job opportunities. The Brazilian side thinks highly of the cooperation. We have a lot of activities going on, and with a lot of uh, uh, collaboration between uh, both companies uh, regarding not only the projects but also the mutual uh, confidence that we have in each other. The Brazilian side does see challenges for the consortium in the coming years, but they have confidence they can be overcome. A new FPSO has arrived in Brazil after months of travel from China and there will be more. 
That was Zheng Yibing reporting. The Chinese Ministry of Transports announced that the cargo throughput of China's ports is ranked first globally for many consecutive years now. Data shows that maritime transport accounts for around 95% of the country's foreign trade. Maritime transport plays an important role in ensuring the transportation of key imports such as grains and energy resources. It also facilitates the smooth flow of the international and domestic supply chains. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, athletes getting ready for the Hangzhou Asian Games. The English Premier League is underway and there have been a few surprises even at this early stage of the season. Join us on this week's episode of Sideline Story to hear our thoughts about the performances of certain teams. We'll also talk about the impact of past and present Asian players in the league, the strategic cooperation between the league and China's village football, as well as up-and-coming Chinese footballers to keep an eye on. Be sure to tune in to Sideline Story, your destination for sports news, analysis and discussions. 47 past the hour now and turning to sports, here's Brandon Yates. Thank you Shane, we begin with the Hangzhou Asian Games. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the Games. New world number one women's golfer Yin Ruoning will be competing at her second Asian Games in Hangzhou. The Chinese star says she believes the inclusion of professionals for the first time will make the competition more challenging. It just makes the game harder because <laughs> all, all the um, professional golfer can compete and, and it's definitely bring the game to the higher level. But um, I do have a confidence about our team um, our team, my teammates, Xu and then um, Liu Yu, they they're also in quite good spot right now. And she just finished second last week, and I believe we we can do a pretty good job in Hangzhou. Yin achieved a bronze medal in Jakarta in 2018. The torch relay for the Hangzhou Asian Games continued in Zhoushan, Zhejiang province on Wednesday. The relay route in the city had a length of 11 kilometers. Former Chinese women's volleyball player Luo Yu was among the 170 torchbearers, which also included Asian Games race walk champion Yang Jiayu and wrestling world champion Zhang Yifan. The torch relay will arrive in Taizhou on Thursday. In today's Meet Asia in Hangzhou section, we go through the 15th edition of the Asian Games in Qatar. Chiju has more. The 15th edition of the Asian Games took place in Doha in December 2006. Qatar's capital became only the second city in West Asia, following Tehran in 1974 to host the Games. Doha will be the Asian Games host again in 2030. All 45 members of the Olympic Council of Asia took part in the 2006 event. Eurosport broadcast the Games, marking the first time that the event could be watched in Europe. Organizers chose Ori, a Qatari Oryx, as the official mascot. A record 9,500 athletes took part, competing in 39 sports, including softball. Tajikistan, Jordan and the United Arab Emirates won their first-ever Asian Games gold medals. South Korean swimmer Park Tae-hwan was announced as the most valuable player as he won seven medals, three of them gold. Team China again topped the medal tally with 165 gold. The games were marred by the death of South Korean rider Kim Hyun-chul. Kim fell from his horse during the cross-country stage of the three-day equestrian competition. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Qi Zhi. 
In selected Euro 2023 qualifier football results, Norway beat Georgia 2-1 thanks to goals from English Premier League stars Erling Haaland and Martin Odegaard. Elsewhere, Spain thrashed Cyprus 6-0 to close in on Group A leaders Scotland. Italy managed to beat Ukraine 2-1 to move into second place in their group. Belgium was also a big winner as the team claimed a 5-0 win over Estonia in Group F. The Chinese men's football team lost to Syria 1-0 in an international friendly. Following a disappointing 1-1 draw against Malaysia last week, the Chinese team couldn't turn their form around. Syria found the back of the net through Tyre Kromer, who unleashed a powerful right-footed shot from distance to put the away team in front. China made several goal attempts and Wu Lei was the closest to scoring in stoppage time. China had a total of 17 shots with 7 on target, while Syria only had one shot on target to score the winning goal. China will play two friendly games against Vietnam and Uzbekistan in October. A Spanish judge has ordered former Football Association President Luis Rubiales to give testimony over his kissing of a player at the Women's World Cup. Judge Francisco de Jorge ordered Rubiales to answer, answer questions at Spain's national court in Madrid. Spanish state prosecutors formally accused Rubiales last week of alleged sexual assault and an act of coercion. According to Spain forward Jenny Hermoso, he pressured her to speak out in his defense immediately after the scandal erupted. Aaron Rodgers' debut season with the New York Jets is already over. It didn't even last one quarter. The 39-year-old quarterback has torn a left Achilles tendon that will require season-ending surgery. The Jets have since replaced Rodgers on the injured have placed Rodgers on the injured reserve list. An MRI revealed the severe severity of the four-time NFL MVP's injury, confirming what the Jets feared after their 22-16 overtime win over Buffalo this week. When exactly Rodgers will have surgery remains unknown at this stage. Torn Achilles tendons typically take several months of recovery due to the extensive rehabilitation needed. Prosecutors have revealed details of Houston Rockets guard Kevin Porter Jr.'s alleged attack on his girlfriend at a New York City hotel. The woman was left with a fractured neck vertebra and a cut above her right eye. These details were revealed at his arraignment this week. 23-year-old NBA player Porter pleaded not guilty to felony assault and strangulation charges. Prosecutors said he didn't stop until his girlfriend, former WNBA player Kaiser Gondrasek, ran out into the hallway covered in blood. Porter was not required to enter a plea during his brief court appearance. He was released on $75,000 bail and was also ordered to stay away from his girlfriend. The International Tennis Integrity Agency has suspended former world number one Simona Halep for four years for doping violations. The two-time Grand Slam champion has been banned for two separate anti-doping rule violations. Halep has strongly denied knowingly taking the banned substance. She said she has, no, she has evidence to show that small amounts of the anemia drug entered her system from a licensed supplement that was contaminated. And finally, the UFC and WWE are now officially under one roof. Endeavor, the UFC's parent company and WWE, announced this week the closing of its merger and the launch of TKO. This company will combine the forces of the two global powerhouse live event and sports promoters. TKO began trading on the New York Stock Exchange yesterday. Endeavor will own 51% of the new company and WWE shareholders will own 49% of it. Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates. Coming up in Culture and Entertainment, an event in New York City celebrating Chinese culture. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. 
Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. Fifty-four past the hour. Turning to culture and entertainment in New York City, the Dragon Fest has become the Big Apple's first official event centered on Chinese cuisine. Apart from serving the thriving local Chinese communities, the events also drawing major crowds from people of all ethnic backgrounds. Some participants are also eager to bring their、uh, delicacies to a wider market. Karina Mitchell was there and finds out more. New York City is home to several vibrant Chinatown communities that started to flourish in the late 19th century, according to government data. Given that fact, it's all the more surprising that Dragon Fest is the city's first official festival celebrating Chinese food and culture. Few attendees we spoke to enjoyed the food and the scene. Do you mind showing us what you got?、Uh, it's like a pork bun. It's pretty good. Why did you decide to come to the food festival today? We actually saw it on social media. Just wanted to、um, try and, and and just try different food. So how do you like it? So far, it's pretty good. Even the little ones found something to enjoy. Do you like the candy? Yes. The festival is the brainchild of entrepreneur Biu Biu Xu. Originally from Eastern China, the now New York resident said she had a clear vision when she came up with the idea for Dragon Fest. I live here for eight years, and there's so many other like countries, same street fair like Japan Fest, like Philippine Fest, but no one do any you know Chinese、uh, street fair before. And I'm from China, so that's the reason I really want help our country to do some our、um, culture same street fair in New York City. She says more than a hundred vendors are taking part in the inaugural festival, adding the turnout was overwhelming. It's really surprised because first events we already have thirty-five thousand traffic, and yesterday we have fifty thousand traffic. One attendee said he wasn't surprised at all. Food always brings people together. Yeah, especially in China, like we have a sharing food culture. We want to share our love to the world as well. Local restaurant manager Raymond Lee shared he's grateful for the enthusiastic response and hopes it helps further revive business after the pandemic. It's so busy, so many people came, and we're so lucky. We're so so happy. Xu told us she hopes to expand future Dragon Fest to other cities with large Chinese immigrant populations, including Boston and Los Angeles, and incorporate more art and live performances. That was Karina Mitchell on the Dragon Fest、uh, being celebrated in New York City. Chinese director Chow Yan's documentary film *Our Dreams, Our Homeland* is set to debut in Chinese mainland cinemas in November. *Our Dreams, Our Homeland* is a tapestry of ten people's stories. The production marks one of the very few Chinese documentaries in 2023 to hit the silver screen. Documentaries are seemingly rare in Chinese cinema this year, despite the popularity of the genre. More than a thousand uh, bamboo and wooden uh, uh, slips from ancient China are on display at the Bamboo Slips Museum in Gansu Province. The display at the museum in Lanzhou is recreating a view of the Silk Road during the Han Dynasty. Most of the bamboo slips are showcased for the first time since they were unearthed in Gansu. Each bamboo slip contains a narrow vertical column of dozens of characters, making them one of the earliest forms of books in China. 
And the Confucius Institute at the University of Nova Sad in Serbia is celebrating its ninth anniversary this year. The aim of the institute is to become a window for Serbian people to learn Chinese language and understand Chinese culture. It's also a bridge for educational and cultural exchanges between the two countries. Founded in 2014, it's provided Chinese language and cultural training services to more than 1,000 registered students, ranging in age from 5 to 55 years old. That's culture and entertainment. 58 past the hour now and checking the forecast before we go. Beijing's down to 16 degrees this evening. Tomorrow's sunny and 28. Chongqing's at 21 this evening, then sunny and 30. Last is down to 8, then sunny and 23. Hong Kong's 26 degrees tonight. Moderate rainfall and 29 tomorrow. Uh, elsewhere at Tokyo, 24 this evening, a slight rain and 31 on Thursday. Islamabad's going to be 26 overnight, then a light rain and 37. Uh, Bangkok's at 26 tonight, then moderate rainfall in 33. In Africa, Nairobi is getting a slight rain and 26 degrees. And finally, to Oceania, Sydney's 10 this evening, then overcast in 22. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, officials in eastern Libya say a powerful storm has killed thousands of people and still twice as many are missing. The Chinese president's met with his visiting Venezuelan counterpart in Beijing. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home.